Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you're listening from, welcome to the Beach from Africa. Every Friday, we bring together some of Africa's biggest entrepreneurs, policymakers, investors, ecosystem players to just come hang out with us, to just have a very honest, but also very brutal conversation on the journey that they've actually taken, but more specifically, their context on the African ecosystem. So it is really an exciting place to be. It is no wonder that we're actually listed as one of the most powerful conversations happening across the African ecosystem. So if you're here tonight, thank you for being here, but also do us a favor, share this around and let more people get into the conversation. If you're just catching up on our podcast, welcome. My name is Siri Sakwa and I'm your host and this is The Pitch Room Africa. Sam, we are back, and my co-host is here. Esther, do you want to welcome Sam for us before we get into this conversation tonight? Welcome, Sam. As in, I've been looking to, I've been looking um, forward to today, and I'm totally excited to have you on the show today. Sam, I got you. You know that. So get ready for CD, but know that I got your back. <laughs> all right, all right. You know, Esther, I've been counting on you all week, so. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. All right, welcome. Wingman today. I am here for you. <laughs> Great. Welcome, Sam. You know, one of the Thank interesting things that we have, um, Sam, that is going on. Um, once we, when we release your profile, um, I reach out. I specifically tag some of my doctor friends that I know who will be interested in the conversation like this. And one of the reasons why I did that intentionally is so that they can come into the space, listen to the conversation, but also challenging some of the thoughts, right? Because this is why we're here. And I know most times, Esther and I have actually discussed this before. When we say the pitch room, people generally think it's just a place where you come and pitch. No, it is called the pitch room because I believe my experience working in the African ecosystem, the pitch room, is probably one of the most brutal space every entrepreneur could be. Sam, you know that. You know this. You've been pitching to investors. Tell us, how has, it, how has that journey been so far? Uh, you know, interestingly enough, I, I literally just got off of uh, an investor call, right? So when, when you know, you called earlier, um, I was on one and we were going through uh, due diligence questions and literally he he had sent uh, maybe 12 or, or 15 questions ahead of time right and that's when you know that like you have someone who actually cares right because uh, the worst thing that you can get is an investor that doesn't ask you any questions because it means they really don't care about what you're building um, and it was very very uh, enlightening right 
it was very enlightening to to hear his questions, how he's thinking about it. And so, yeah, that's that's the way that it's been with with a lot. I pitch a lot of investors, especially when you're building something that is unconventional in in the way that we we're we're doing it, right? The the first thing, as you can imagine, that we hear is, oh, why aren't you just doing money transfers, right? Then you you really get into the conversation because that's the thing that people are going to benchmark you against. Um, on that end yeah yeah no and I think that justify why we're here so ladies and gentlemen welcome again Sam let's just jump right into it 52 less than half of the African um, African citizen which is about 52 percent which is about 612 or 650 million people there about don't have access to healthcare. As a matter of fact, your grandma died from something that could have been solved if she had the proper access to healthcare. Tell us about that moment, that specific moment. How 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 did that happen? And you know, what were you feeling at that point? Because that particular point was what actually birthed this desire to wanting to change the continent. So Tell us about that moment. Yeah, so in February of 2020, right, um, you know, when when my grandmother had gotten sick, it, it's very unusual for her to sound the way that she sounded, right? And I remember she called me. Uh, uh, my grandmother was old. She almost never called, right? And she passed away fairly quickly. Now, when she passed away, you know, we, we just knew that we had sent money for her to, to go to the hospital, but it was when she passed away that we actually got to hear um, what had happened and then the, the issues that were involved, right? One, the fact that if you come from like the kind of background that I come from, you know that, um, you know, traditional medicine is a thing that people believe in. And I don't necessarily think that that is evil. Um, but, you know, when people start saying, okay, uh, take this thing that you don't know what is in, you don't know what it involves, what, you know, and, and that becomes the way that care is being provided, uh, and it's worrisome. So when I found out that my grandmother had been given something to drink, um, which basically accelerated the, the problem and, and led to her demise, um, you can expect that I was angry, upset, right? But all of the questions I was asking were essentially useless because one, it wasn't going to bring her back, and two, it wasn't going to change the situation. But that is the feeling that, that I had disappointment, sadness, upsetness, because effectively, we couldn't go back to reverse any of this, even though there's so many things that we, we said, you know, why would this happen? Why, who was the person that gave us the, the thing to drink? Um, that's the way that it felt. Mm. And, and, and and I think one of the, 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 the profound reason behind um, that movement, you see, life, so I'm not I'm not here to justify what happened. Um, and, and I'm really, really deeply sorry that that happened to you know that happened the way it did but a lot of people across africa are hugely dependent on traditional medication 
not necessarily because it's bad because it's really really good but you know the dosage so there's a doctor here maybe he will jump in but i think that the dosage is not scientifically proven so most times it causes more harm than good and the reason why people take these alternatives is because of the lack of access to proper health care in general right sam not right here was speaking on mute. Um, the reason why people take it is because um, of a number of reasons. And I think, right, um, there's, a, there's a part of the belief that when everything becomes unexplainable or when, when you are in like really, really deep trouble, you're really open to everything, right? You know, you you have uh, this pain that isn't going away, and you're worried. Everything becomes a possible solution, and so even while like I judge and get upset and all of that, I can imagine what it feels like for someone to tell you that, oh, I know this person who lives in this you know place, and they have this herb that will help you feel better any relief feels like a possibility. It's like when someone is dealing with cancer, you will try experimental uh, uh, medicine because you want relief. And so I think that is at the core of it. It's admitting and understanding that the situation is hard and difficult and painful. And it opens you up to try things that normally and logically you would not necessarily consider. Um, and so I think that's the first part of it. The second is also when it comes to, you know, um, autonomy or agency. Uh, my grandmother wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, independent in the way that she would have been maybe 10, 20 years ago, right? And so you rely on a lot of people to make decisions uh, that you wouldn't always, uh, you know, have wished to make. And so for me, those are the things that I kind of take to, to mind when we talk about you know, what leads to, to, to that. Mm. So, so, so you, know, you know, one of the things that is so fascinating about that level of desperation is there are different factors here, right? So to quote the World Bank, the African continent carries 25% of the world's disease so the whole world the burden we the african continent carries 25 percent and our health expenditure is less than one percent which is you know really incredible when you look at it in a very sad way and so it means a lot of people are hugely um or most times in desperate situation right so um and 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 97 million of africans which represent maybe roughly about 82, 8 to 8.2% 8.2%, to 9% of the population, incur catastrophic healthcare costs, particularly in countries like Sierra Leone, Egypt, Morocco. And the out-of-pocket expenditure is just really, you know, insane. At what point do we then turn that desperate need for relief into an action plan? Like, universal health care coverage because in the continent at the moment there are probably like five countries that actually have that yeah that's a really good question that you're you're asking right and i wanted to to add on to what you mentioned uh before 
Right, which is the fact that, you know, when when you think of, oh, Africa has, you know, 23 to 25% of the world's disease burden, um, the part that makes it really scary is the thing that Africa only makes up today about 16% of the world's population. But we have a quarter, right, of the world's disease burden. And then what you added on is the fact that for us to actually solve this problem, we have the smallest, as a continent, not a country, as an entire continent, we only have 1% of expenditure, right, of the world's health expenditure. So if you think about it logically, not only do we have the highest problem, right, from a healthcare standpoint, but we're also spending the smallest portion to address it. And that is where you start to understand that, you know, we really are lost, right? Because we will actually not, like, from any kind of math standpoint, be able to solve the problem, right? Unless we did something extremely drastic, we actually are not on a pathway to solving that problem at all. Once we understand that, like we can situate ourselves and start looking at, okay, you know, how radical can I, our ideas be in order to be able to even start to think of solutions that work. So that said, the question that you asked around, you know, um, how do we start innovating around these with, with things like universal healthcare um, uh, programs, right? Um, I, I take a very, you know, maybe not a maybe uh, a different standpoint in the sense that one, I think we're just not prepared to do the work that is involved. We're not. We're not prepared at all to do the work that is involved in doing that because it will require us to actually spend money. Look at every African country, maybe with the exception of Rwanda and, and South Africa, right? But look at every African country, and then maybe uh, Gabon. Um, we do the direct opposite of the, the biggest problem that we face. We actually, year on year, reduce our healthcare budget spent, right? While we deepen the problems in healthcare. So I can't even like answer that from a fair standpoint because I think like we're illogical in the way that we assess it. So 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 here's here's a very interesting question, right? So I mean Rwanda is not in Mars, Rwanda is in Africa. Um and Rwanda have maybe about 90% of 90 to 90 to 92% of their population by 2020 covered by health insurance. Why are other leaders not at least looking at the example Rwanda is setting and wanting to put, you know, a tiny bit of the work or even find ways to to make it work? Uh, that, my friend, is uh, a question that is one for the ages, right? If, if you've watched, um, you know, and Rwanda is not perfect, uh, Kagame is not perfect by any means, but... Um, I think the incentives are different. Um, the incentives are different for every one of them, but that is like really, really hard, um, you know, for us to even try to decipher why, especially when there's an example 
uh, to be able to see. But I think um, every country and, and its leadership is, is currently considering um, its own priorities maybe differently than, than the way that I would be able to look at it or even the way that we are capable of understanding. Because to be honest, it, it, it does not make sense for me um, to be able to even understand them. The, the, the IFC and one of the things that makes this um, very sad is is that you know the IFC said that in the next decades will the, the continent healthcare demand if we were actually to meet the the continent healthcare uh, healthcare demand especially given the rate at which um, the population is growing we will need to spend about 25 to 30 billion um dollars that that is just in 10 years in the healthcare but then the african remittances that goes into to africa um just as of last year was about 53 billion dollars and most of that money is divided between healthcare education and you know some investment but primarily healthcare and education why have governments especially let's use your context for instance why have governments especially in countries like ghana gambia for instance 28 percent of their gdp is, is driven by remittances can you imagine 28 percent so why have governments not leverage the power of the remittance flow to invest in healthcare? why have government not leveraged diaspora to invest in healthcare? In the continent, if at all we were to go by the, the standard of 25 to 30 billion stated by the IFC uh, as an investment across the continent, this is across the continent, by the way, then why is it that we're missing out in leveraging the power and the wealth of the, the, the African diaspora to build our healthcare? Um, so I, I'm going to approach this from, from two perspectives, right? Um, one, um, we we will give you know um, credit where credit is due, and then we'll also tackle some of these challenges, right? I think at the at the bottom of everything is number one, uh, government is not the most efficient um, you know purveyor or, or um, activist for innovation, right? On the other hand, I'm a big proponent of governments being. Um, the supporter, right, or the enabler of an environment that allows us to be able to do um, the things that um, we see as being best for the populations that we serve, right? And so that is the first part that I look at, right? I think, do they know how is the question that I ask first and foremost, right? Um, Government workers and people who are in government are caught up in multiple different areas of uh, growth or areas of need in an economy and are often not necessarily incentivized, not uh, particularly motivated um, or misincentivized from a political standpoint um, or do not have the right qualifications. And for the people who do have the right qualifications, government might not necessarily look attractive to them as a place for them to express their creativity or their know-how, right? Um, and so that's that's the first thing that I try to do or look at, right, as a way of saying, 
maybe if they knew better or maybe if they had more people willing to support um, they'll be able to figure out how. and then number two is there are examples of places where governments are trying to leverage this um, an example is um, you know the, the, the Lagos state government and in fact other uh, Nigerian governments we don't often say this uh, enough right so a few years ago the, the Nigerian government um, decentralized um, and made it possible for individual states to be able to run their own health insurance markets and their own uh, state-run universal care program right so that's one uh, uh, step that we saw number two uh, Governor Samuelu uh, in Lagos, right, in the last couple of years, and we've been fortunate enough as a company to be part of the very early conversations, and in fact, have an existing, uh, um, you know, uh, agreement or contract that we're working on, uh, albeit how long it's taking, to be able to turn the diaspora into, um, you know, a force for good when it comes to making healthcare accessible. Um, the Elera Echo program that is being championed by the Lagos State uh, Health Management Association or agency is um, a keen example that it can be done with the right set of motivations, the right set of expertise, as well as a willingness to be able to partner with organizations that are looking at the space. Now, whether the execution will come to fruition, whether it would eventually see the light of day, that's an entirely different thing. But I think these are some of the things that we can acknowledge. But the bigger problem is the fact that most people simply do not know how to, right? And then the worst part would be when we have governments that see remittances as really um, an excuse not to invest enough. Because if people are receiving remittances and a large portion is going to go towards covering healthcare, right? Why is the government necessarily incentivized in, in shifting or doing something about it, right? When it just gives them the opportunity to focus on other things that are more uh, pri- uh, of a priority for them in that way. Long answer, but but hopefully that sheds some light in this way. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to challenge you a little bit on on, on some of the things that you've said, right? So, yeah. Africa as a continent is is not without sound policies. Mostly, what our policies lack is the intentionality back in these policies whether it's the strategy to get the policies on the ground whether it's the the, 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 the instruments to actually support these policies so they, they they create the necessary impact so here's a question the Lagos state health um, scheme which i know of um, i well i know about you know um seeks to actually provide health care for people in Lagos yes but then there's a lot of things that yeah. were promised but at the same time a lot of inefficiency would you say that policy have been a success oh it, first and foremost it hasn't even been implemented let alone uh, you know be a success so like I said the, the caveat is I like the thinking and I like where it's going um, the, the other part is to actually um, see it come to pass Right, so that that is like the biggest thing that we have to see, um, and so I'm hopeful, but um, yeah, cautiously hopeful. 
yeah but 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 again again the the the, the again africa is not without policies right so mm-hmm. and i think this is this is one of the reasons why we are happy when entrepreneurs like you come into this space right trying to cultivate and bring about this really really dying need um because we are not without policies if it is policies we're not without policies i mean we have policies dated ages that have never been even implemented they've never even seen the light of this is they were passed into law whatever it is right um yeah but the problem is our population is growing really quickly and we are actually facing a health with a with the with the way our population is growing it is possible that if the right investment is not made in the in the in the continent in the healthcare space soon we'll be facing a catastrophe now entrepreneurs like you have decided that you know based on your personal um experiences to jump into into the space tell me what has your experience been and tell us a little bit about the journey of flary ah so the the flary journey um one has been one that yeah it's been long and and i have some of my teammates uh on on the call it's it's been a really really long one uh that at at times right even feels uh, a tad bit uh impossible right and today if we look at you know what it is it's a lot more clearly defined on that end but when flare started it started as a personal mission right it started as a personal mission because for me it felt uh crazy that um and I was working for Signet Global at that time that you know Americans can get up and go anywhere to to go get care, live anywhere without having to worry about that. Um, you know, and I think that supporting um the expatriate uh, community, right? 9.2 million people could access care in 135 countries. But yeah, 48 billion immigrants living in America supporting their loved ones and for the last 70 years, the only option they've had uh is to send money. So, it just felt a bit like is it that we don't know how the technology doesn't exist the people won't agree to it it just felt like a personal mission to solve something that didn't make sense right and so at that point in time i'm like okay why is this just not possible and i will say this i had i had the opportunity to have studied uh someone who became a mentor um launched a similar idea uh, a few years back um Dr. Kiba Jobate who served on um an Obama uh committee you know extremely smart man went to Yale went to Harvard went to Princeton right and so he has started a company called Remit for Health in Kenya years back now as a doctor he wanted to help Kenyans in the diaspora because everybody has experienced this be able to provide care for their family members back home um he has started the company the company ended up shutting down after 5 years of of trying that's how hard it is right um 
but I noticed something about the way that he had approached it. As a doctor, his first focus, right, and frustration was around the quality of care that Kenyans abroad, right, could provide for their family. And so he went about building actual hospitals. Today, those hospitals are uh, together known as Antara Health. Um, but that's where uh, Dr. Jobote started from. Now, for me, not being a doctor, right, I was just bullheaded about something that I felt like did not, exa- uh, um, did not work. And so my journey started when, with my insurance background, right, and, and hopefully everybody takes a lesson out of this, which is, you know, when we start to think of solutions, sometimes it's good to start from where you are and what you know, but sometimes it's really important for you to go to fresh principles and eliminate all of the things that you currently know, right? And so when we started, um, it started from the perspective of can we help Ghanaians, just like uh, Dr. Jobate focused on Kenyans, to pay for health insurance for their families back home. That's how it started, right? First, we started with Signa, then we went on to Arcomed, then we went to Ghana to try to get insurance to take a bet on us. Um, went through that a whole year of a pilot, trying to figure out so many different things. And we learned a lot, right? We learned that health insurance was never going to be successful as a primary way of bringing access to care. No, it won't. Um, so many reasons. Penetration was low, concentration of networks are low and urbanized. Meanwhile, 60% of um, money transfers were going to rural areas, right? And so we had learned a lot throughout this journey um, and multiple iterations, essentially to go through every single step and testing, solving, iterating to be able to come to the point where we are today, right? And, and that gives you like, maybe an understanding of like the beginning stages. It was never cut and dry. It was never, we have this idea for what Flurry is going to become and we know it and we're going to execute on it and it's going to be great. No, it's been a lot of frustration over the last three years to get to a place where we have a repeatable model that even then we're still testing and, and learning from. Is, 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 is that frustration born out of the the... the... The traditional insurance system not wanting to accept um, solution like yours that could, you know, potentially put them out of business, or is it born from the idea that, uh, for me, the way I see some of these insurance company work is that they tend to at least try to create a structural barrier for access to healthcare in general. This is why we have bad health packages being sold in the continent for places where it is made available. So, you know, and, and I am one for acknowledging uh, what the system has been, right? Everybody is very familiar with this problem. Um, it wasn't born out of like a, a resistance or intentional resistance of traditional health insurance to new ideas at all. No, not at all. In fact, um, we were able to get lift off largely because of the willingness and the openness of traditional health insurance companies, right? Um, not all of them, right? So Ghana has about 17, 18, um, you know, registered insurance companies, um, 
there were only three that backed us in the beginning. So um, a lot of no's, right? But we had some really, really future-thinking, open-minded industry players that took a huge bet on us uh, to be able to start. And so there was always a willingness, not necessarily um, a clear path to defining what that would look like, but there was always a willingness. The challenge was with the realities of the ecosystem, the realities of the infrastructure as it existed, um, and the difficulty in being able to change um, an industry that has existed in a way that has largely improved uh, for decades, right? And the fact that there just isn't enough money at the beginning to change a lot of these things. So that is where I attribute the challenges to, rather than um, you know a, a lack of willingness of the traditional players to actually support new ideas. Well, I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. But and before I hand over to CD, I have a question around the areas of your challenges, the areas of your struggle. Um, I mean, just telling us this story would look like this was really. It looked like it was a walk in the park. Of course, I know that difficulty having from like three no's, you said three no's, emphatic no's on this journey um, oh, as a startup no, no, founder. No, I said out of, out of 17 or 18 health insurance uh, providers, only three, okay. right, took an initial bet on that. So that's a lot of no's, oh. right, to get those three. Three. Oh, I get that. Oh, so that means you actually had 17 and you got three out of 17. So let's call That's it 14, 14 no's. <laughs> All right, let's take it a bit backwards on the 14 no's. Um, you know, on the journey when you're trying to, you're in a quest to finding something or you're in a quest to solving a problem, no's may not necessarily serve as well for your journey sometimes. They may really sometimes set as um, they may seem as um, a challenge or can be a setback so how are these other 14 no's before you landed at these other three how did you navigate these no's i mean was it how difficult was it and did you question your solution to these problems while you were on this journey oh 100 um so I, i'll tell you this uh, as, as a founder that has done this multiple times, like I, I know not to take myself too seriously, right? And I don't get too attached to my ideas. In fact, um, every idea that I start with, right, you should automatically assume that it's crazy and it probably won't work, right? Now, um, it becomes my job to find other people who are as crazy to think that they want to do this with me. Like, it, it's really just that simple. And that is, that is like, my way of dealing with insecurity. That is my way of dealing with uh, no's. It is also my way of dealing with the fact that, you know, something could turn out not to be true or work in, in that way, right? That's how I protect my sanity. By assuming that it's crazy enough, right, then we're going to start out and discover just how sane that craziness uh, becomes in, in that way. But the no's basically became opportunities to really go back and examine, well, why are people saying no? And 
which people are saying yes and why are they saying yes? Because it's very easy to take the no and think that, oh, that is just, you know, because you got to throw everything out. But no, it, it allows you to be able to take that and see why. Um, and then look at which part of it are they saying no to. Because rarely, rarely is someone actually saying no to the entirety of it. Right? It's like me walking up and saying, hey, want to do dinner next week? Um, okay, which part are you saying no to? Dinner? Next week? A place? Which is it? And as a founder, being able to ask these questions or something that seems seemingly straightforward like a no allows you to start drawing uh, you know, insights from what you're hearing and then to start working on how do you de-risk it enough that someone is able to start saying, okay, maybe versus a straight no? I think this makes it, I think this makes perfect sense. I like the way you've been able to channel your energies properly and the no's were seven as twelve, if you ask me. They were seven more like twelve and also seven as pointers to be able to find out um you know, I think it's difficult for most founders to do that initially when fueled by the passion of what they are trying to solve. But having this mindset is 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 really intriguing for me. Um, I'm not sure CD has asked you this question, and I hope that I'm still the good cop here. Um, but this question generally is about why you started um, platform Flurry. I know you talked about I mean, I've seen where you talked about your your grandmother losing your grandmother. Um, I won't want to take you back to that experience, but since the inception of Flurry until date, how has it been able to save more lives? Um, how has the feedback been, and how has this made you feel? You know, um, knowing that you've lost your your grandmom, and you know that if things were properly done, if maybe Flurry were, were in existence, things could be better. How has how could you just how would you be able to put this into words, and how has the feedback been since the inception of Flurry? Hmm. Okay. So I will say this. It's really, really hard to change the way that people do things that they're used to, right? So in terms of feedback, uh, it's very, very subjective when I say um, response is good or response is, is not bad. But here's the way that I look at feedback. At the end of the day, right, at the end of the day, we judge everything from the perspective of, like, hard evidence, right? So are people getting access to care? Do people have options for care? And do people want to provide their family members with care? Because the alternative is the easiest thing to do. Simply download an app, go to a Western Union, and send money. And so our validation points are largely focused on these three things, right? Um, and we objectively try to look at what that data looks like um, consistently to be able to give us that feedback that we need. Um, in the beginning, I will tell you, it was really, really hard, really, really hard to go um, and then tell someone, hey, you can buy an insurance plan through us and your family will get care. Now, I will say this in two ways, right? There is what people tell you that they want what people think they want and there is the thing that people actually show you that they want right everybody that is on this call right everyone that is on this call if you were to ask them yeah 
does the idea for Flurry sound great? Everybody will automatically tell you yes. I've learned to take that with a grain of salt. Why? Because what we realized really, really hard was the fact that while everyone says that it makes sense for me to purchase a kind of care plan for my loved ones, people actually don't work or think that way. Immigrants wait until something happens and then they spring into action. And there's lots of reasons for this. But mine is not to start digging into why they behave the way that they do. Mine is to understand how do they actually behave versus what they say. And so when we realized that, it also told us that the way that Flurry actually works will need to be different, right? And so it's a, a, a longer response to your question, what has the feedback been? What has the response been? Um, it is a type of response and the type of feedback that we're looking at. And every time we learn more, right? Every time we learn more, we're able to serve a larger population of people because we're adjusting for the way that they truly behave. And so today, right, the biggest difference in the last, what, five, six months uh, to Flurry's, um, you know, trajectory has been the fact that now Flurry actually pre-validates and pre-pays for care, right, so your loved ones can get it. So think about it in this way. When we started, you would have to have seen or gotten on Flurry, purchase a plan for a loved one so that their family in Ghana, Nigeria, Zambia, or any other countries that we cover would be able to have some defined set of health benefits. Today, if your cousin got into an accident, right, in Accra, you'd be able to come on, jump on and fill a request for membership, um, and then create an account on Flurry. Now, once you do that, right, you would reach out to by your family care manager. You can tell your family care manager exactly what it is that you want. Hey, my cousin actually just got hit by a car and has been sent to Kolebu, right, which is a hospital in a car. Um, can you help? Yeah, we can. So a family care manager will reach out to the hospital, validate that this person actually had an accident and has been brought there will tell us what that cost is going to be and we'll let you know. Now, the best part about Flurry and what we're doing now is the fact that we will ask you, do you want us to cover this care, right? If you say yes, that's a pre-approval, right? That allows us to be able to pay for your loved one to get the care that they need immediately and then you pay directly where you live. You never needed to send money abroad. You never needed to do a money transfer. You never needed to move money immediately. That is how we've been able to learn from the way people behave into building a product that actually serves people the way that they are today. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be handing no, no, it off to you, right? Now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, Sam, how, how, how long does that process take? The process from... The, the entire pipeline. So someone is 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 run over by a car in Ghana. Mm-hmm. I reach out on Flurry. The person is in critical condition. We all know how medical um, hospitals, you know, not all of them, but for the most part, operate in Africa. You know, without the necessarily uh, the necessary funds, you probably not receive um, treatment and things like that. So, in terms of just a time scale, how 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 fast does that happen? 
So we're literally talking minutes, right? We're literally talking minutes. And the the big part of that is the fact that um, we're not a transactional platform. We're human-centered, right? Technology works for humans. Humans don't work for technology. And so the reason why, yeah, you can automatically create an account. But the reason why you get access to a human family care manager is exactly what you said. The countries that we cover are emerging countries. It's not technology that makes this work, right? I get access all the time. It's the ability for us to be able to reach out to uh, our partners at Nationwide, our partners at, um, you know, Kualibu, our partners at a hospital, right? And accelerate that. That is exactly the reason why Flare works. It's because we build to the realities of the countries that we are in. And this is what allows us to do this uh, in minutes, right? Because so long as we can validate that this person actually needs care and you've approved that we do that, right? What we're doing is managing a system of escrows, right? In each of these countries to allow us to pre-finance the care that your loved ones need, increasing, right, that speed to care in a way that money transfers will not be able to do. So today, if you went on and you went to download and sent World Remit, right, then someone has to take that money, go in, pay the hospital, uh, and then the person gets care, right? We have existing relationships that allow us to be able to do that and speed up their access to care. And because we work with family care managers and healthcare professionals, it allows us not just to be a transactional layer, but to be an advocate for your loved ones in helping them get the care that they deserve. Wow. So, so, so <laughs> yeah, so listen, um, Sam, that's that's almost um yeah. utopia, right? It's utopia and, and, and it's 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 close to perfection. But let's 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 push that perfection a little bit down the line. So at what cost does that come? <laughs> um, today it comes it comes at like a high operational cost. That's that's true, right? It comes at a high operational cost. But um, the way that we essentially balance it out is two things: um, the membership, right, starts out with a community membership, but the membership is not free. So that's that's part of of that. Right, it's $120 a year to be able to access the things that we do at Flare. Right, primarily because we provide you with that peace of mind that your loved ones will be okay. So you pay to actually have access to it. Right, $120 a year if you pay monthly, or $99 a year if you pay the entire year. So that allows us to be able to maintain the human presence. Uh, to be able to ensure that we have the operational reach and coverage to be able to do that. Now, that does not cover the cost of care, right? And then with the cost of care, um, when we prepay for the care, right, that is a financial risk on our end, and as such, it needs to have a return, right? So when we prepay for that care, you are going to pay for the care in the diaspora country where you live, um, with a two to five percent uh, uh, convenience fee, right? That is attached to um, the cost that we're prepaying. So that is uh, the way that we we manage that operational 
uh, uh, cost and the way that we we handle it. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. So yeah, yes, there's just a few questions that I have left. That is going to you know further challenge our conversation a little bit. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us live um, tonight. We're actually joined by the amazing sound guys, one of my favorites, um, startup Flurry, um, Sam Bado. This, as always, is the Beach Room Africa, and thank you for being here. If you're just catching up on our podcast, we do want to see you join us live, but you know, feel free to listen to the conversation, but also drop us questions that you may have. When we come back, we're going to further have the conversation with Sam, but it is opportunity we are having an opportunity for members of our audience to open up you know with questions that they may have but also challenge us in some of the conversation that we have so when we come back if you're happy to join us on stage just raise your hands we'll be happy to bring you this is the pitch from africa billion dollars in 2022 it is growing at a 5.26% rate and it's hoping to double that amount by 2030 or at least if if not double but at least get close that how that is how large the african health insurance market is and it's no it's no fun why a lot of the the the, the, the players in the, in the market are almost predictable almost have a predatory approach to healthcare insurance and it makes sense that we have guys like um, Sam looking to disrupt the the, the, um, the market but also looking to bring access to everyone especially those people who on a normal basis will not be able to afford the extremely high cost of medical healthcare or well of healthcare in the in 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 Africa, but we want to just challenge um, Sam a little further down the line about his work with Flurry, but also the healthcare um, industry in general. Sam, welcome again. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Great, fantastic. So, listen, man, you know, incredible job. Um, like I said. I personally think I see myself using Flurry. I see myself supporting, uh, um, you know, people back home, um, you know, just using Flurry to, to purchase some of these plants. And you and I have actually had conversation in terms of the future of Flurry and the, the diversity that you're trying to embed with Flurry. But here's a question. 
um, for you. The insurance companies that you work with, at what level do you get them to understand that it is people's first and then money later? Um, okay, so I'm going to try to be extremely diplomatic. I think it's critical uh, because these these are partners that we work with. Um, and as always, I try to help bring uh, perspective to, you know, their operations and the way that they look at uh, things as, as well um, in, in the way that we, we look at it. So, um, hmm. How do I put this? So, there are insurance companies. In fact, I would say as far as that every insurance company, right, health insurance company at least, um, that we've worked with aims, right, aims to be people first. Now, while they aim to be people first, there's the reality of the actual uh, mathematics of insurance. To have a large enough pool such that the group of people who need the care, right, will always be smaller than the greater pool. Now, when this math does not work, everything is thrown out of balance and this is where i I am going to share you know um a very a very clear example of how this math goes out of the way when we started out um a lot of insurance companies took a bet on us right our first year we knew it was going to be crazy but we didn't know how crazy it will be, right? Um, if you understand what loss ratios are, right, which is the percentage of uh, claims, right, to your general pool, we had loss ratios with our partners in excess of 200%, right? That should be never be the case otherwise you're you're actually not doing anything that is sustainable and this led to one of the biggest lessons for us in you know dropping our first model why because when we started out we knew that the first customers we were going to get are people who have been dealing with healthcare issues for their loved ones um for a long time in the diaspora they're always sending money back home. And so they understand the pain point very, very well, right? In the insurance companies, um, you know, from their perspective, they wanted to be good partners and be people first. And so we, we had very, very, um, you know, relaxed or considerate um, policies when we started out. One, we had open term limits, which means that we had no limits on the age of who could enroll. Number two, um, we did not issue any kind of medical check, right? Because it's the first year of something innovative. 
any attempt to create more friction will simply lead to a product that never gets off the ground. And so we needed to test it. And our partners were gracious enough, right, to work with us to test this out. And this is exactly what happened, right? We got started and the people needed care. There were people who in 10, 15 years had never been to a hospital. And the first time they have a relative abroad who's bought them an insurance plan, they go to the hospital only for them to discover they have diabetes, they have hypertension, they have high blood pressure. They have all of these things that they've never actually kept track of. They would just have gone and dropped dead at some point in time. And then we'll do the usual. We'll say it is the home village, uh, the, the, the village witch that did it, or we don't understand what happened, right? But now all of these things were coming to fore, right? And so when you understand that context, you start understanding that insurance companies on the on the continent are extremely risk averse exactly because of this region reason. They are dealing with a population that has not historically, right, been health conscious do not have information on their own uh, uh, health conditions there isn't general data with regards to these people and and I can explain even further right why you know Europe and America behaves differently around insurance and and some of the measures that help in solving this right systematically from an infrastructure standpoint there's so many challenges which will continue to be a problem and so this is where Our insurance partners are coming from so they want to be people first but they are the realities of their operational environment and the fact that they are not charities right and so with that said i know that most insurance companies will not be able to ex- uh, uh, sustain an extremely people first agenda and so what they have is aggressive risk mitigation which leads to a lot of the things that we see today that happen uh just in order to make a few dollars great um so we do have um Golda Golda you're here welcome thank you for being here if you'd like to ask your question can you unmute yourself ask a question or even share a statement with us you have um, 60 seconds on the clock Golda Um hi thank you See, this has been really informative thank you so much Sam um I really really like um how the product has evolved I have actually written down my questions and um some of them you you covered but I think I need a bit more clarity on the role of Clary as a healthcare provider Um and I would love to hear how you imagine this role will evolve and how many um customers do you currently have Sam Hey Sam are you there Oh I I was speaking on mute I'm so sorry Okay <laughs> um, Yeah. So number one is I I want to be super clear, right? Flurry is an enabler to access for care. Flurry is not a healthcare provider. Right? That's really really important because um this shows you the perspective from which we approach the market and why we do things differently. Um Flurry does not um 
hire doctors. Uh, Flurry is not trying to build the hospitals. We're actually trying to direct actively the flow of an existing pool of uh, capital or an existing source of financing that has always been there, which is remittances and the remittance potential in the diaspora into the healthcare ecosystem in emerging countries to be able to, one, accelerate access to care for people who can't afford it, and two, build a much more resilient healthcare ecosystem in the countries that we operate in. So that is the first thing that I will say uh, from that end. Now, the second question, how do we see our role evolving? Now, I will assume that this is how do we see our role evolving just from a typical healthcare standpoint. Now, the way that we see our role evolving is um, from the data and information perspective. Today, I'll give you an example of a typical, um, you know, relative. I'll take my dad even for, for an example. Prior to Flurry, what happens with my dad is um, all of his decisions are made from an availability of um, um, like money standpoint or financing standpoint. Um, and his decisions around healthcare were focused only on that. If he has money, right, so the first is capital, right, and then the second is level of pain or the seriousness of the condition. If my dad wasn't feeling well, it will start with a visit to a pharmacy. And this is the way 70% of the African population behaves, right? You go to a pharmacy and you're going to go self-medicate because the conversation with the pharmacist goes kind of like this. Um, oh, Dr. Smith, um, I, I don't feel well. And it feels like my tummy is hurting. I think it might be malaria. I, I, I don't know if it's a bacteria or... I, I really don't know what's going on, but you know, I'm thinking it might be malaria, right? So we go to the hospital and we don't even use Google, right? But we start suggesting to the pharmacist what it will be. The pharmacist, right, on a basis, wants to sell his medication. That's his incentive. And so whatever it is that you tell him, he will do what? Validate it. And most of us, that's what we go there to do. We go there not to be challenged, we go there to go validate what we think is wrong with us, and we take the medication that he sells us. Now, um, the second part is when we go to a hospital. So say you go take that medication, and then it doesn't stop, you go to a hospital, and now you're trying to get, okay, so I'm gonna go to a doctor, get a consultation, they're gonna ask me to go do a blood test, and I'm gonna come back. Depending on how much money I have, right, I'm either going to do that blood test or I'm just going to go home and then decide to go do the blood test maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe three months from then. By the time I go to go do the blood test, it might be an extremely different situation. But then, let's say I go do that and I bring the results back. Now, I may either take the results back to the original doctor that saw it or I may take the results to a friend of mine who is a doctor or a friend of my uncle who is a doctor and ask them, so my doctor asked me to go do this. Can you take a look and tell me what is going on, right? All because of what? We're trying to avoid paying for care or incurring costs that we don't necessarily have or want to incur. 
right? Based on that, we will decide if we want to go back to the hospital or the doctor. And then my dad is going to go see this doctor. They go and the doctor says you should see a specialist. That is going to be another two, three months of juggling around and figuring out if he wants to do this, right? All in all, right? My dad starts from this pain that he was having. It's now become six, seven months. And guess what? At every point in time, he's calling uh, his brother in in the U.S. or someone to say, hey, and I wanted to go to the doctor. Can you send me some money to go do this? Uh, The next week is this, the next week. And this is why uh, requests from relatives are cyclical. They just continue and they never seem to end. Where Flurry is evolving its role is in continuity of care. And so when you become a member as someone in the diaspora, Flurry assigns you not just a dedicated family care manager, but also a virtual primary care physician for your loved one. The reason being, the primary care physician serves as that constant medical authority that communicates with your beneficiaries, helping them, one, evaluate the things that they are hearing or feeling or going through and providing either a referral note to go see a doctor in person, a referral note to go see a specialist, right? But the biggest part of this is that every time they go see a health professional, right, Flurry acts as an authorized advocate to go back to that provider and ask for the data back, as well as a recommendation and a summary, and presents this to the beneficiary's primary care physician, who is then able to evaluate that and help you as the sponsor and your beneficiary to make better healthcare decisions. And by doing this, we are helping to centralize data in a new way that most people do not get even for themselves or for their loved ones in that way. So hopefully this, I I know this will be long and I'll get feedback from you before we go on to your other questions, but hopefully this sheds some light in terms of how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves as an enabler in the ecosystem and how this is evolving in in the way that our relationship with uh, the health ecosystem, the beneficiaries and the sponsors themselves uh, are going to be. Thank you so much for that. Um... Yeah, um, yeah, great, fantastic. Um, Golda, do you have a final question or a statement? I have, I have a lot of questions actually, but um, I think uh, another thing I, I wanted to know was, let's just say I am a customer, I'm assuming you're selling to to people like us in the diaspora, um, and I then pay to become a member. Does does my coverage, how many people do does a Flurry membership cover? and how does the, the pricing model looks for that if it's more than one person? Yeah, good good question. Um, and, and again, um, Golda, are you in the US or are you in the UK? Uh, right now I'm in the UK. You're in the UK, okay. Um, I, I'm gonna assume that you know, um, you know, the, the 
retailer called Costco, right? Um, and I'm going to use that as an analogy to, to help um, kind of understand this. So you asked, you know, what does your coverage uh, provide? So Flurry is not a health coverage. We're not an insurance company. And so your membership really isn't a coverage for healthcare. Your membership is access to a family care support infrastructure, right? So your membership is not what pays for your family's health care. It is what gives them access to the support structure that we described. So Costco has like memberships, right? It's a big retailer like Walmart here. There's like Sam's Club and then there's Costco. You pay $90 a year and they give you access to a card. It's just a card. But the card allows you to come shop at their place. So unlike other retailers where you just walk in, you need a card, right, which you pay $90 for to get into Costco. Flurry works exactly like that. You pay $99 a year in order for you to actually be a part of Flurry, right, in that way, to use Flurry for all of the things that they do. Now, understanding our, our people, we offer a community membership, which is complimentary. But with that community membership, we, could, we can only provide support for one beneficiary. When you pay that $99 a year, you can bring on as many beneficiaries as possible or as necessary that you take care of, right? So that's what you get with Flurry. It's not a coverage for your loved one. It's a support infrastructure. And what you're getting with that support infrastructure is access to a dedicated family care manager who is in the country where your loved ones are and is responsible for coordinating care. Everything from scheduling medical appointments to them, from being the first response line when there's something going on with them, to verifying whether the thing that they're asking for at the hospital is true, to setting up and making sure that medication gets to them, following up with them, right? Calling them on a bi-weekly basis and checking on them. That's what the family care manager does, right? The second thing that you get access to, right, is a virtual primary care physician for your beneficiaries. So if you came to us and you paid this $99 at the end of the year and you brought on your mom, your dad, your brother, and your sister, now, all four of them would now have Dr. Smith, right, as a primary care physician for them. Anything that is a problem or anything that is going on, they can talk to Dr. Smith about it, right? They can ask questions to Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith will respond to those questions. And every month, right, they have two virtual care consultations, right? These are 45 minutes to an hour sessions right which are like just going to the hospital except you're doing it virtually right why because being virtual is what allows us to be able to keep the cost down they would be able to do that and talk to them now dr smith can prescribe medication for them dr smith can tell them that they need a follow-on in an actual hospital dr smith can ask them to come into his own hospital right where he he is right for um, an in-person physical dr smith can ask them to go get a lab test in that way but access to dr smith is the first and foremost part of this you also get uh, a monthly beneficiary wellness report which is a summary of all interactions that either our family care managers are having with your loved ones 
or the providers are having with your loved ones. And like I said, we are authorized advocates for your loved ones. And so we pull any information from any provider that they see and make it available to them. And if they've authorized us, make it available to you as well, right? So this is what you get with your Flurry Care membership. It's an entire support infrastructure, right? And then there are other things like access to our health marketplace, where you can purchase a care plan, like an insurance plan from any one of our partner providers. If your relative is elderly, you can get um, a geriatric care plan from one of our providers like GeroCare in Nigeria, uh, AxoCheck in Nigeria, um, ExpressMed in Ghana, and all the others, right? So that is what you get. Hopefully, I've I've given you some context for that. Yes, Yes. actually. And I would would say that that has completely changed my perception of what Flurry does, to be honest. Um, And I'm really happy I asked that question because um, I think the potential of what you're doing is so much more now based on everything that that you have said really yeah. interesting yeah. Uh, thank you very much for that so I'm just cautious about the time and I know um, Sam that we've taken you above the, the time that we have actually booked this um, call for so thank you for being here um, I'm incredibly grateful for you to be sharing with our community today and for those of you who are joining us live thank you for being here and um, you know all of your questions concerns um, have been really really helpful um golda thank you for sharing sam as we come to a close of our conversation today um i do have two final questions and then michael who's esther will probably come in and ask a follow-up question and then we can come to a close one question is how easy is it for entrepreneurs from an infrastructure um, perspective to disrupt the African health care ecosystem. Second question is, why is it taking us so long for entrepreneurs in the continent to disrupt their ecosystem? Yeah, I really, really appreciate um, you know these questions, and and Gola, thank you for uh, for the questions. I think uh, you know very similar to to uh, your understanding of it. A lot of people look at Flurry, and the first thing they think is, oh, healthcare company, right? Um, but if as you dig in, you realize that uh, the healthcare isn't really like the, the problem. There are amazing companies like Luca Health, uh, Yahoo. Um, you know, that there's so many people who are building, right? But the infrastructure isn't supporting them to be able to grow for us to have the kind of proliferation, largely because affordability remains a huge, huge barrier to people being able to scale healthcare companies on the continent. Now, to get to the questions that you asked, um, the first one is, yes, Healthcare innovators and entrepreneurs are extremely primed, right? There couldn't be a better time because as everybody starts to acknowledge that the future is Africa, the future will be unattainable in any kind of sense without a solid infrastructure. And you can go in on different levels, 
for the investors themselves that are coming here why would you be putting money into fintech uh, uh, players and fintech uh, entrepreneurs and in all sorts of entrepreneurs when when they become sick they don't get access to quality care their lives are in danger in fact you're risking your entire investment if there isn't at least some support for the people that you're putting money in to be able to get the care that they need to keep them healthy and grind right also when we look at the larger population of africa a population of africa that is sick is going to be a population of africa that will not achieve its potential right and so when you look at the industries that are going to transform africa into growing into this opportunity that it has right agriculture the ability to be able to grow and feed ourselves healthcare the ability to be able to stay strong to actually do the work education the ability to turn people and human potential into actual talent capable of executing right and then you look at uh financial infrastructure now we are over indexed on fintech right but all of the other areas are in gap and then you have logistics which is the ability for us to be able to make all of these things operational happen in that end right and so yes healthcare entrepreneurs are extremely primed at a very opportune time to do that now the second part why is it taking them so long because we live in a time today where the risk averseness of where capital is coming from right so we already know that governments are all indebted across the continent right so what they're doing is actually reducing their healthcare allocation in their budgets which means that we're not going to see any significant investments from there number 2 foreign investors that are coming into the continent are today over indexed on fintech because they think it is the pathway to quick uh, uh returns but here's the problem what is the use of us providing another sms loan uh, smb loan or another fintech coming in when the people that we're lending to are not healthy and we know that the thing that is pushing the largest uh, uh, piece of our population into poverty is healthcare spend right and so every time someone gets sick everything in their life has completely been vaporized right and then the third part of it is the availability of funding to do the hard work over the long term that it requires for healthcare to build and i the work that we do at flary is so interesting in the sense that we work with so many of these entrepreneurs and i can give you so many examples right take pharmacy right uh i i deal out uh um who is in um Nigeria building pharmacy it's a, it's a pharmaceutical prescription management company helping people to understand the effect of the prescriptions that they are taking the dosage and how it is impacting them we have no dosage information today when you look at the continent and where people are self medicating and the kind of things that they're taking right number 2 you look at people like fulake um you know Oduni who is who is building emergency response africa right we have such a shortage of emergency response care across the continent if you went out today and you got into an accident right as i live in the us and you think about it right someone somewhere is going to call 911 what's your emergency someone is going to send an ambulance and there is a high possibility that i will make it into a hospital and possibly live 
Think of most recently what happened, right? A young kid goes through a door, gets shot in the head. He didn't die, right? Because they had access to emergency care. As terrible as it is. In Africa, what would that be? If I collapsed, now it is chaos, it's confusion, it's everybody running helter skelter because they don't even know what to do, let alone an, uh, an ambulance making it through all of the traffic and getting to me. And so these are some of the reasons that are present, preventing amazing innovators like the ones that I've mentioned from being able to actually deliver on the promise of healthcare innovation across our continent. And if we don't solve it, man, we are in trouble. That is, that is, um, that is fantastic. So it's been, it's been a pleasure to have you here. We've, we've actually covered some really, really amazing conversation. We've had some really, really um, amazing time. I'll just move on to Esther. Esther, do you have a final question or a word for um, Sam before we call it uh, a night? Um, I mean, I would say, Sam, I hope you enjoyed your stay and I hope that city wa- wasn't as scary as you made it sound. My only question would be, uh, is Flary in Nigeria? Because I've heard you talk about, I mean, this is like my very first time hearing about Flary. Is Flary in Nigeria and um, how is your pricing, as in how has the business in Nigeria been like? The Nigerian atmosphere for Flary, how has it been? Because I heard you mention some Nigerian companies. That's basically the only question I have for you tonight. Yeah, thanks a lot. So Flurry currently covers uh, and works for immigrants living in the diaspora with family members in Ghana, Nigeria, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Kenya, and then the Gambia. Over the next few months, we're going to see a lot more countries uh, um, opening up. Right, but these are the countries that today, if you have loved ones in, Flurry will be able to uh, uh, to cover and support in that way. Our customers are uh, mainly in the U.S. and Canada, uh, but we have folks across Europe that are using uh, Flurry as well. Now, um, you know, it's really really simple. It's ninety nine dollars a year, right, to be able to get your own family care manager to be able to get access to our prepayment service which allows us to be able to validate care and prepay for the care that your loved ones need so that you are only paying for the thing that your money is going to solve for right and in that way and nigeria has been fantastic primarily because everyone knows that in nigeria there isn't any kind of universal health care system that is working and so people know that this is what the, the the situation is also we're all very aware of the fact that when you send money right you have no visibility to where it's going how it's going to be used if it's going to be used and you know if you come from where i come from you have to be the person who sent the money, but also calling to ask, hey, so did you actually get to see the doctor and what did the doctor say, right? Because once they get that money, like you're you're out of the mind until the next time they need money from you. And the thing that we didn't really get a chance to dig into and talk about is the fact that why are we doing this for the diaspora, right? The biggest challenge that we don't talk about is the fact that of the $630 billion a year that the diaspora is sending, right? How many of those people who are sending that money are actually well off, right? We keep talking about the increasing volume of remittances, 
But who does that really, really affect? It affects the people in the diaspora. You didn't leave Mankesin or leave uh, Ijebore, right, to go to the UK only so that you can be sweating every single day just to send money back home and be poor, right? And it's even worse for Africans. African immigrants in the US have the lowest retirement readiness rate at 2%. For every 100 of them, only two of them will be able to retire. And that's where we need to change. We need to create an immigrant or diaspora community that is thriving, not just surviving, so that they can take 75 to 85% of their disposable income and just ship it across for someone to spend. No, we're bringing efficiency, transparency, and accountability for the immigrants themselves because they deserve it. They work hard. They're working for themselves and all of the people that they care about. And it's important that their money goes to do the things that they truly want to be able to support. Wow. I I think this is so beautiful, um, Sam. I want to say thank you very much for putting all your effort into this. And I think that Flary even has many more, you know, many more angles to develop. I mean, talking about the immigrant community, I think it's something you should be thinking about as well. You know, I love the fact that Flary is um, a platform that ensures that the monies that immigrants send for care is used judiciously. You know, given the fact that uh, monies could be used for different things. If this money didn't go through a platform like Flurry, what will happen is that the money could be diverted, funds could be diverted for several things, you know, which definitely these immigrants will not be able to control. So I really love what you're doing. Now I even understand even better what CD, why CD is so excited about what you're building. Um, thank you so much for spending your time here with us today. Thank you, Golda, for such an insightful question that you brought to to the room today and CD as always it's a pleasure to be here with you and have these bands and these talks thank you everyone who's here today it's been an amazing amazing session CD any final words I'm excited already and Sam you're gonna be hearing from me soon all right thank you very much indeed it. indeed it's been it's been such an incredible um, opportunity to speak with you sam um, thank you for being here thank you for all of the amazing things that you're doing um it's just um it's just really really amazing right i'm just really really happy really really grateful for all of the work that you're doing. Sam, before we before we go, here's here's a question that I think I missed out. And I think I, I would like this to be your final word um, in, in the conversation around the, the, the African diaspora, the health, the healthcare, entrepreneurship, and the context in between, um, in between all of that. The continent still faces a huge structural challenge to healthcare. Out-of-pocket expenditure is still one of the highest costs to access in the continent. Players like you are trying as best as you can to actually get diaspora people like us living overseas to be able to cater for our family back home by providing us with the access what type of support do you think entrepreneurs like you 
truly need outside of just finance to be able to bring the future or the possibility of meeting the 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 sustainable development goal in healthcare by 2030 I think the, some of some of the things that can be done I'm just going to focus on one uh, is collaboration by right? collaboration between young entities that are working uh, to advance solutions and collaborations with existing entities who have been around for a long time um, this is super critical for us to be able to build innovative ways right for people to access care while taking into consideration the challenges that exist on the continent and i'll give a small example right there really isn't a need for africa to continue to overinvest right in large ambulatory facilities we know why our politicians do this right because it is giant it allows them to claim political points but it's actually contrary to what the data tells us most people need access to affordable primary care and preventative care and if we went back to reconsider the, what the model can be right building solutions that tap into community care availability and there's so many people that are advancing this right m pharma is an example um of of companies that are doing some work in in this space uh well health reliance are examples right we actually need to collaborate so that if you have for instance evercare or really big hospital that collaborate with startups to be able to build um structures that bring care closer to people either virtually or in the places where they are already going to right by making use of existing places right imagine if in every shop right or in every uh uh store that you went to or or big supermarket right we could have a primary care desk um there's a company called Numacare that is building an innovating uh, uh innovative experience around this called North right and i think this is a place where we will start to see a lot more lift collaborations with existing players for us to be able to build a more innovative approach to getting healthcare to be affordable and to getting healthcare to be more accessible getting healthcare to be affordable and getting healthcare to be more accessible it's been such a pleasure to have you here tonight ladies and gentlemen thank you for being here thank you for listening to us for those of you who join us live for tonight's session we've been speaking with the amazing founder of Clary Sam Badu Sam is actually based in the US his organization has offices in the in the US and Clary is one of the few startups that I'm really really excited about that is actually bringing access to healthcare for our people back home by allowing us people like myself who live in the diaspora to pay for these plans it has been such an amazing conversation if you're just catching up on the podcast thank you as always please feel free to download the podcast but also share with members of the community and if you do have any questions or any thoughts do drop us an email this 
is the beach room africa thank you oh,